Please take your seats. Just before we, we get into the teaching today, just want to give a couple of announcements. Uh, first thing is to say that um, next Saturday at our Summit House offices, we are putting on a special day seminar. Um, our business fellowship is doing that for you. And some of the things that we're going to be looking at are, for example, um, how to write your CV. So if you're looking for a job, you haven't got a job and you're looking for a job, or you've got a job and you're thinking about looking for a new one, then next Saturday is going to be very helpful for you. Um, if you need, to, you need a decent CV to even have a chance of going forward in your work. So we'll be, do, we'll be doing that. Also, they'll be looking at interview technique and there's specialists there that show you how to go and find that job that you want. It's all free. And uh, if you want more details, it's there in the Revival Times. And we just ask that you register, get a registration form from reception so that we know how many people are actually coming next Saturday. So just to say that. Also, on the 1st of March, Friday the 1st of March, we're going to be starting something new on Friday evening. It's going to be called KT Friday Night Live. And what this evening is going to be is it's going to be especially for young adults, and um, that's anything from 17 years right to 27, 28. And this evening is going to have a mixture of things. Um, we're going to be having... Uh, have you got that sheet for me? It's just today's sheet, thanks. No, the next sheet. And these Friday evenings are going to have a mixture of music and testimony and gospel artists with open mics some evenings, testimonies and altar calls. And uh, it's really to put on an evening that will be a great night out for people, but it will also be a chance for people to hear the gospel and get saved. So it's something you'll be able to bring your friends to. Because, you know, on a Friday night, where are the young adults? And what do they want? Uh, they don't want to come out to some service that is a repeat on Sunday. They can go to a service on Sunday. Most young adults, if they're worth being called young adults, want to go out and want to have fun and want to have a good time. And so on that evening, with the music, there'll be a lot of urban music, rappers, different artists coming in. It's going to be a place where you, people will be able to bring their friends, hear the gospel, have a good night. And then at the end, when we finish the, the, the time of testimony, music, and that thing, then downstairs there's going to be a late-night cafe that will go on till 11 o'clock with... DJs and things, so people can just hang out, chill out, talk together. And so this is a new thing that we're going to be doing on Friday evenings, from Friday the 1st of March. Got a lot more to say about that, but I just want to sort of sow the seeds for those of you that might be interested. If you have your Bibles with you, could you turn to Revelation chapter 1? Revelation chapter 1. And verse 12. We've been looking at the end time truths and we have one more Sunday left on this series and then in March we'll be starting a new series that will take us through to Easter and that will be the series on Israel and the Bible. Israel and the Bible. So we'll be looking at different aspects of Israel, the relationship between Israel and the church. We looked a little bit at 
that a couple of weeks ago, but we'll do that in more detail. We'll be looking at the festivals of Israel, the spring festivals and the autumn festivals, and find out how they were fulfilled in the New Testament and fulfilled in Christ, and how uh, we can learn from them about the gospel. And uh, we'll be looking at Israel and the promised land. Some people wonder, has God finished with his promises for Israel and the land? We'll be looking at all these things so that in that next series, we can acquaint ourselves with what the Bible says about the nation of Israel. But today I wanted to start something which I may continue next Sunday if I don't complete it. And this is, in the book of Revelation, I want to have a look at the message of Christ to the seven churches in Revelation. That's where I feel led to go with you. So I'm going to do a reading from Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Oops, sorry, no, verse 11. (laughs) I was in the Spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Pergamos and Thyatira, to Sardis and Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair and head were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Here, in the book of Revelation, and we've spent quite a bit of time in the book of Revelation over the last few months as we've looked at various topics regarding the end times. But in the book of Revelations, you have a series of messages. You do indeed have John speaking about what would happen in the end times directly preceding the return of Christ. And we looked at the age of the seven seals and compared that with with Matthew that brings us into the age of the uh, seven trumpets and bowls, the great tribulation. We've looked at such topics as the rapture, uh, the soon coming king, uh, the millennium when Jesus comes and reigns and rules with Christ for a thousand years and the battle of Armageddon that takes place at his return and the last battle that takes place after the thousand years when the devil is released for a short time. We've gone through many of these uh, truths, but the book of Revelation not only speaks into the last of the end days, it also is a relevant 
prophecy to the churches that were around in Asia Minor at that particular time. And this is important to recognize when we're looking at end times truths and prophecy. That prophecy, yes, does deal with the end times. But although prophecy deals with the end times, it also has relevance for today. Because when we study the end times, God expects us to respond to that. It's not just some head knowledge. Oh, what's going to happen during the tribulation? Or how is Jesus going to return? But when we ever study the end times, the Holy Spirit is calling us to change in our lives, to get ready for the end times. The New Testament calls the church to be prepared and ready for the soon coming King. The first teaching that we had in this series was the soon coming King. And we looked at many of the passages in the New Testament, many of the parables of Jesus, uh, the ten virgins, you know, the five wise and the five unwise virgins. And many of the parables and sayings of Jesus are all about being ready for his return, that we wouldn't slumber or sleep, but we would be alert for the coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says that Jesus will indeed come as a thief in the night, but not to those that are alert in the spirit. Do you know that? It will not come to those that are alert in the spirit as a thief of, of the night. It only comes to those that aren't saved or are asleep spiritually to the second coming. There are certain signs and things that must take place before Jesus returns. And when Paul spoke to the Thessalonians and two Thessalonians, Thessalonians said, I don't want you to think that the days come because there's certain things that must take place before Jesus returns, such as the revealing of the Antichrist, who he will eventually slay with the breath of his mouth. And James and Peter and Paul always speak about the fact that the day of the Lord is at hand. Whenever the Holy Spirit is poured out, one of the things that he brings into our lives during revival or outpourings of the Holy Spirit, there is a quickening of expectation in believers' lives that Jesus is coming soon. The Spirit is the Spirit of prophecy. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, the birthday of the church, for the first time, when Peter preached that prophetic sermon um, from Joel, and he began to say that in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your handmaidens shall prophesy and old men will have visions and young, uh, old men will have dreams and young men visions. And then it goes on to speak about the second coming of Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit was poured out, there is an increasing expectation of Jesus' return that changes the church. Jesus isn't coming back for a spotty, dirty old church. Ephesians chapter 6 says that, Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, when you read that passage, it's speaking about the, that, those chapters, it's speaking about the purifying of the church, the bride of Christ, so that it will be ready, anointed, and mature for the return of Jesus. So when John received this revelation, the book of Revelation, and although so much of it is about the end times, he was applying it to churches that were alive and well, and some of them weren't alive and well, as we'll see, but churches that were existing right there. And that this prophecy of the end time would cause them to change some of the things that they were doing in preparation 
for the coming of God. The book of Revelations was written around AD 95, so the church had been alive for about 66 years, and it had been through a lot. It had grown tremendously, but it also had tremendous persecution. It had tremendous persecution under the emperor Nero. And uh, while the book of Revelation was being written, the emperor Domitian was on the throne. He was on the throne from AD 81 to 96. And during that time, 40,000 Christians were killed in the Roman area alone. This is where we hear about some of the great stories of the martyrdoms of Christians actually being thrown to the lion, persecuted, tortured, and slain. And so when this book of Revelation came out, the church was weary, afraid, uncertain, under attack, and Jesus had some words to speak to them. And these lampstands that we hear of, and we read in verse 11, of these seven churches that were in Asia Minor, and we see that Jesus has a word for them. You know, Jesus doesn't just let the churches go on. He has a word. Um, Jesus has an opinion on every church. He has an opinion on these seven churches. He has an opinion on Kensington Temple. You know, if you're in a, a work place, a, a working place, normally you'll have appraisals. So you'll have an appraisal every year or every six months. That's what normal uh, things do at Kensington Temple. We have our staffs, they have appraisals, and those appraisals are positive. Those appraisals are there to affirm what's right in the person and the job that they're doing. But those appraisals are also there to help the person grow and get better, and even sometimes to confront some things that aren't working right. And so here in Revelation, we see that Jesus is appraising these seven churches. And he tells it as it is. He sees their positives, but he highlights their negatives and expects change. As the head of the church, he was aware, he knew their works, he knew their strengths, and he knew their weaknesses. He saw their faithfulness, as we will see, their patience under persecution. But he also saw compromise, apathy, apostasy, indifference, and lukewarm. And he pointed those things out, and he expected immediate change, but he also had a plan and a solution. And we will see that in these seven churches, their strengths can often be seen in strong churches today, but their weaknesses can also be seen in churches today. Human nature doesn't change, does it? And although circumstances in which churches find themselves often change, and we'll find that they, these churches, many of them, were in very difficult circumstances, the way they respond to difficult circumstances, the temptations as well as the courage are reflected in these churches, and it's good for us to look into the mirrors of our own heart to see what God is speaking to us as individuals through these churches, confirming the strengths in our Christian lives, but also pointing out the weaknesses and also as leaders in our cell groups or our, or, or our satellite churches or KT to say, what would God, if this is what God said to these churches, what would he say to my cell group, my group of cells, my church, my, my movement? And before we get into these 
churches, one of the things that you will find again and again is this phrase, overcome. Those that overcome, I will reward. And Christ, when he spoke to these churches, all of these seven churches, although they were different in their strengths and weaknesses, Christ's message to them all in one way was the same. He's waiting, he's wanting his churches to be overcoming churches. God wants you to overcome, do you know that? He wants you to be an overcoming Christian. One of the main messages we find in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 2 is God is looking for the end-time church and the end-time Christian to be somebody that overcomes, not somebody that is overcome. And one of the greatest dangers in the church in Britain and Europe today is that it is not an overcoming church, but it is a church that is constantly overcome. And one of the greatest dangers in individual Christians in Europe today is that they are not overcoming Christians, but they are Christians that are so often being overcome by their circumstances. And God wants you to be an overcoming Christian, an overcoming cell group. He wants us to be an overcoming church. He wants us, he wants us to strengthen ourselves, to confront the things that are trying to overcome us spiritually and in the world, and enable us to be overcoming by the Spirit. And I know today, because I felt the Holy Spirit tell, to share these things, that there are people here today, people watching right now on the internet, a lot of people join us on internet live, and many others watch these teaching series as they do the rest of the services throughout the coming week. And I know that there are many of us that are in situations where we are overcome, where we are facing circumstances in, in, internally in our lives or externally, and if we look at our lives, we're just about keeping our head above water. Jesus doesn't want us to keep our head above water. Jesus wants to walk on the water. He wants you to overcome. And I want to encourage you, because sometimes when you see things that you need to overcome, it can be discouraging, disappointing. You say, how can I deal with this mountain? How can I deal with this situation? How can I deal with this characteristic or flaw in my life that keeps me fainting spiritually? God knows what you face, and it's his plan for you to overcome them. Because how can you be an overcomer if you've got nothing to overcome? Jesus could hardly say, I want you to be overcomers, and then give you nothing to overcome. It's like that passage in Romans. We are more than, you got it, conquerors in Christ. More than conquerors. Well, if there's nothing to conquer... How can you be a conqueror, let alone more than a conqueror? Part, a big part of God's plan for your life to mature you and strengthen you and bless you is that you overcome. So don't look at the things that you need to overcome always as negative and keeping you down. Your destiny relies upon you overcoming. And guess what? There's nothing you can't overcome. Because Jesus wouldn't put in front of you anything that you can overcome. And let me tell you something, there is a blessing when you overcome. We'll see here, there are rewards for overcoming. 
That's what he wants. God wants to raise up a new church, an overcoming church, a resilient church that overcomes things in their personal lives and overcomes things together in their corporate lives. We're not alone. We have people around us. We, have, we should conquer as cells, conquer as individuals, conquer as a church, not in Notting Hill Gate in London, conquer as a British church, conquer as a European church. Now, when we look at these seven churches, as we will, and I'm not in a hurry today, I don't mind moving this over to next week as well as the Spirit leads, but five out of these seven churches had major sins and weaknesses that he required them to firstly recognize and secondly to overcome. And Jesus doesn't mess around. Have you noticed that about the Lord? He doesn't mess around. It seems to me that the Jesus that a lot of people are talking about in churches today in Britain is very different to the Jesus that I read in the Gospel. Very different to the Jesus that we read in Revelation. It seems to me that a lot of the, the type of Jesus that is preached in many churches today or spoken about is some sort of weak character that simply accepts everybody, that doesn't, that doesn't make a demand upon anybody, that is totally inclusive, that won't judge anybody, that, you know, if it's all right with you, it's all right with him, that just says, well, I love you, there's more of my grace, just keep on going, nothing's going to happen, don't worry, your pace, your style, your way. That's nothing like Jesus. That's nothing like Jesus. Jesus is loving and gracious and patient. He's also extremely confrontational and knows how to speak into our lives, and we read this, with a word with a mouth that has got a two-edged sword. When was the last time you felt the, the, the word of Christ cut into your flesh? And if, you, and, and, and if you've never said, ouch, when the Lord has spoken to you through his word, then uh, you're backslidden. Because one of the best things, whom the Lord confronts, he loves. And so don't think that God is happy to keep you where you are and that you can just drift on in some sort of false grace, like it doesn't matter, it matters. And these churches were going through a lot more than we as a British church. I'm speaking of churches. British churches think they're going through something. They, haven't, they, they, they don't know the first thing about it. You should see what some of these churches were going through. And Jesus expected more of them, not less, more. You'd have think, why is Jesus, in the mouths of so many, so much more patient with the British church today that isn't going, undergoing hardly anything, persecution at all, and yet when we come to these churches that were going through extreme tribulation, extreme persecution unto death, he still demands more of them. <laughs> Have we fallen so far from the expectations of God of his church? You know, if you don't expect anything of your child, guess what? They'll, never, they'll rise to that low expectation. This idea that there's no expectation, that there's no standards, that you just do what you want to do in your own time, it is not the New Testament Christ. Jesus is there for you. He's there to pick you up. We all know the grace of God. But he's also calling you to higher things. Now, he also said to them, he was plain about them, he said, I want change or you're going to be judged. 
Oh my God, Bruce is speaking judgment. I thought, we were, I thought he wrote a book called No More Law, all about grace. He said to these churches, I'm pointing these things out and I expect change and if there's not change, I'm going to judge you. Now, I might not like saying that, but that's what the Lord says. He said to Ephesus, we'll look at what... We'll, he said, Ephesus, if you don't change, I'm going to remove your candlestick. In other words, you'll cease to be a church. He said to Pergamon, he said... If you don't change, I'll fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He said to Laodicea, you're lukewarm, and if you don't change, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Are we ready for Christ's return? God is pouring out it. We are not ready. I wish we were, and I, and I know you're excited about his return, and that's what you're meaning. We are, we are not ready for Christ's return. We are not ready for Christ's return. We are nowhere near ready for Christ's return. And if we think we are, we're in self-deception. But we are excited, as you are, about his return. And that's, that's, that's what you mean, I know. Now, there are eight promises to these churches to those who overcome. I just want to show you these, because this is the overcoming theme that's here, the overcoming theme. You say, well, I feel too weak to overcome. God wants to strengthen you with his spirit and his word. You say, I feel too weak. I don't think I can be an overcomer. The Lord's not man that he should lie to you. He wouldn't bring you into his sheepfold to do and to overcome something that you can't overcome. You can overcome and in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit, you shall overcome. It's his destiny for us. And um, let's just go through these, these different, there are eight that I'm going to talk about here. Um, Revelation 2, we'll go into the churches in detail after, but let's just look at the rewards for overcoming. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Notice this phrase will come back again and again. He who has an ear, let him hear. Why would Jesus say that? Because many people think that they are listening to God. But the moment you think you're hearing God, you better be careful. You assume that you hear God. But let him who has an ear hear. We need to take a second hit. Sorry, did I just hear that right? Jesus says, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. We should never take hearing the Spirit or the Word of God for granted. We should always be listening for that fresh Word. So he who overcomes, I'll give and eat to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. These are rewards. These are nothing to do with whether you get saved or not. All right? If this verse meant that you're not going to get saved unless you overcome then Revelation is in direct contrast to the Gospel of John that says that if you believe, you have already passed from darkness to light. So all you need to get into heaven is to believe Jesus died for you on the cross and rose again. And if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is raised from the dead and Lord, you, my friend, are saved for eternity. Jesus is the one that does the work and the overcoming to get us into heaven. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
but I've spoken to this group before, but there are rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks about the foundation of grace that is Christ. Nobody can build on any other foundation except Christ. But you can build on that foundation with precious jewels or with straw and rubbish. And at the end of that, 1 Corinthians 3, it says, every Christian's life will be tested by fire. And if they have overcome, if I can use Revelation's term, they will receive a reward. But if they have not even attempted to overcome or to serve the Lord, then their whole life will be consumed, but they will be saved as if through fire. The picture is of having a house with all your possessions. It's set ablaze, but you just managed to get out in your nightgown. We'll give you a nightgown. Uh, but you're saved by fire. You took nothing with you. So Revelation is speaking about reward. There are rewards in heaven. Do you know that? There are rewards on earth. If you do right, if you're obedient, if you seek to follow the Lord, you're not perfect. No one's asking for a perfect obedience or a perfect response. All God's asking is that you walk with him in the right direction. That's all. That's all. You will get a reward on earth. What is the reward? The blessings of the kingdom of God, the presence of God, the anointing. God will walk with you. It's doers of the word that are blessed, not just hearers. So you will get the presence of God on the earth. And we'll see that some of these churches were in a terrible situation circumstantially, but they had everything of the kingdom of God. They were rich spiritually. And you'll also get a reward in heaven. Secondly, we find Revelation chapter 2, um, verse, end of verse 10 and 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. James speaks about a crown of life. Now, the crown of life is not being saved, because that would mean that if we die, that, that if, you, if, if, you don't, if, if you don't be martyred, you won't receive this reward. No, this is a special reward. The crown of life is a reward for those that die for their faith. Then he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, it doesn't say killed by the second death, does it? It says hurt by the second death, remember? This isn't saying that if you overcome, and we'll see what these churches were told to overcome, that if they don't overcome, if the angel of Smyrna did not overcome, then it would go to hell. It's not saying that. It says you won't be hurt by the second death. And many people think that this is a reference to the fire that will consume all the wasted lives of Christians that never responded to the Lord in obedience. And then we have again in uh, Revelation 2.26... And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Last week when we looked that when Jesus returned, and remember you can see all of, all of the past ones up on the website, the KT Media page and the website, you scroll down to series, you go to end time truths, and everything's there that we've taught. Last week we said that when Jesus returns and comes to earth, he will rule and reign with his church for a thousand years. But depending on our obedience to him and our overcoming will depend on the reward and, and size of reward of our rulership with him. So that's a bit strange, not really. Think about the parable of the talents. 
and those that put their talents to work received more. They gained their reward. This is a theme of the New Testament. And um, power over the nations. We will rule and reign. But somebody that gets saved and does nothing for God, do you think they're going to rule and reign? Oh, they'll be around. But um, they'll probably be given a little allotment somewhere. Whereas God is looking for people that will rule cities for him. Amen? Uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garment, and I will not blot his name out from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The book of life can mean two things. Right at the end of Revelations, we see that all those whose names wasn't in the book of life uh, were thrown into hell. But the book of life can also mean a book of reward. In fact, it was a book of reward in many of the Greek cities of the day. So if anybody accomplished anything, overcame, if I might use the phrase, if they overcame in battle for the city, if they overcame in sports and, 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 and won at the Olympics, if they overcame in politics, if they were an overcoming person, then uh, they would be written in the city's book of life, which is a book of remembrance of the acts. And so this is speaking about that. Um, chapter 3, verse 12, I, I want to move on, talks about being a pillar in the temple of the new Jerusalem. He who overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of Jerusalem. This is talking about those that overcome. God will put as a special place as the pillars of the church. Um, chapter 3, verse 21. Him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne. And I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And finally, I won't go to it, but chapter 21, verse 7 says, he who overcomes will inherit all things. Now remember, when we're looking at Revelation, we are looking at apocalyptic, prophetic literature. And so when you look at Revelation, you don't study it in exactly the way that, say, you would study the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans is teaching. Clear, precise teaching. The book of Revelations is full of imagery, and symbolism, and Revelation jumps to the future, jumps to the past. It, it's prophetic literature, so you don't, you, whenever you read the book of Revelation, you have to understand its literature. And as I've taught you, when you want to study a topic in the Bible, always go to where that topic is taught most clearly, and then move to the other scriptures. So, if you want to know what the Bible says about how to have forgiveness of sins, how to be saved, and how to know that you're going into heaven, where do you go first? Revelations? No. You go to, yeah, Galatians, Romans. Galatians was written to explain the gospel in the face of a false gospel. So it's a very pure uh, statement of the gospel. Romans is teaching, especially in the first eight chapters, on what the gospel is. John said, I wrote my gospel that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in his name. That's where you go for the clearest doctrine on how to be saved. And then you can go to the other passages and revelations. But Christians get into trouble, pick up a scripture out of Revelation, take it out of context, and then say that Galatians, Romans, <laughs> and John all have to change to be in line with that scripture. That's not the way we do things. And so when we're handling the book of Revelation, we have to handle it in a different way. Because there's many ways of coming to Revelation. God's power is on the book of Revelation, but it was his purpose 
that it wouldn't be as clearly understood as, say, the book of Romans and Galatians. Why? Because it's prophetic material. Because God wanted it to have a mystery to it, where we can see glimpses, where we can see, see it from one side and see it from another. But through those, I just simply want you to take away the fact that God is looking for an overcoming church, right? Don't get too into detail. Oh, what does a white linen thing mean? How does that? Don't get too much into the detail. Get into the spirit of what's coming across. God is looking for you to overcome. You are able to overcome in his power and his spirit. Don't let the devil lie to you. In fact, uh, Revelation tells us in Revelation 12 verse 11 that we will overcome the accuser by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. God wants us to overcome the flesh, the world, sin, and Satan. The flesh, the world, sin, and Satan, and we can all do it if we believe the devil is a liar. And so we see these overcoming motifs that are here. God is looking for us to overcome. Let's go to the first of these churches, Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things, he, these things says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lamps. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary." Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of, our, of, of God. Now, Ephesus was called the market of Asia. And the church in Ephesus, by the time that Revelation was written, was around 40 years old. And that means that the first generation of Christians had produced a second generation of Christians. And this new generation of believers didn't quite have, well, they didn't quite have, they didn't have the fervency and love of those that first pioneered the church of Ephesus. You know, it is a truth to say that one of the biggest battles in a church that's been around for a while is to keep the fervency that began it. The fervency that began it. It's the same in revivals. It's the same in great moves of God. That the pioneers of a move of God were known for their fervency, were known for their love and their passion for the Lord. And that fervency, love and passion is what caused them to overcome, to pioneer a great work. But the danger comes in the next generation of Christians that come into that move or church because they don't need to pioneer like the others have pioneered. Well, they do, but they don't think that they do. All the hard work's being done. I mean, you know, how many of us paid for this church to be put in the centre of Notting Hill Gate. Many of us gave money to its restoration a few years ago, praise the Lord, 
thank you very much, but somebody had a passion to build this church in Notting Hill Gate 150 years ago. And we can just come and walk in and sit in it. If we, if we, this body here today, watching, if we were back then in Kensington, in that Presbyterian church in Kensington, would we even be at the prayer meeting where the fire fell and God spoke to them to take up an offering to reach the unreached in the new area of Notting Hill Gate? Would we even be at the prayer meeting? If we were at the prayer meeting, would we have sacrificially given to this new church plant of Horbury Chapel? If we were at that congregational church in Kensington, would we have stepped out to be part of the pioneer congregation that are here, or would we just enjoy the seats of the congregational church? No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just asking the question. Would we? And generations that come into so-called successful churches... There's a danger that we ride off the sacrifice of those that go before us, that we take what they've won and what they've given and what they've achieved for granted, and then we begin to dissipate. And one of the most important things that keeps the church alive is passion for Jesus. Now, they were doing a lot of good things. This wasn't some, you, you would go to this church, you wouldn't call this church in Ephesus backslidden. They worked hard. They persevered. They patiently endured hardship. They didn't even become weary in doing good. They labored for his name, and they had a great discernment. You, you, they, they weren't fooled by the false prophets. They weren't fooled by the excesses of the so-called prosperity gospel. They weren't fooled by any of that. They weren't stupid. They'd been around the block. They knew what was genuine and what wasn't genuine. This wasn't a bad church. But you see, Jesus tells it as it is. Are you mature enough for Jesus to tell you as it is? Don't answer that. You've learned not to answer, haven't you? <laughs> Are you mature enough? For, would you be mature enough to sit in front of the Lord right now and say, tell me as it is, Lord? And you know, thank God, he doesn't tell us as it is. But also, he needs to. There's sometimes when God has spoken a word into my life, and I'm not sharing it with you, uh, that is shaking me to the core. Shaking me to the core. And you think, oh, it's a bit hard, Lord. That's, 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 that's a bit of a, a hard word that you've spoken to me. But it shakes you. And if you're mature enough, it shapes you. I mean, when we disciple one another in the Lord, it's like, oh, will you disciple me? Yeah, I'll disciple you. Oh, that's great, as long as I speak affirming things to you. But how about I put my, some, my finger on something and push it? Ow, oh, I don't like that. Oh, you're just saying that because you're jealous. Oh, what's your problem with me? I don't have a problem with you. I'm discipling you. Yeah, but you just told me I've got an issue that I need to sort out. Yes, I have. Well, who are you to tell me? See, forget it. We're not ready to be discipled. We're not open. We just want people to pat us on the back and say everything's okay. But we need to be in relationships where people can say, it's not okay. It's not okay. Faithful are the wounds of the friend. But most 
people think friends today don't wound. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Jesus' wounds are faithful. And he says that you have left your first love. And the word for left means to let go or to forsake. Now, they continued in their works. They were doing the works of the gospel. But Jesus was saying, look, without work that comes out of love and passion for me, it's not acceptable. And the phrase he's using is first love. Now, I don't, the risk of being, I don't think Jesus is as sentimental as I'm about to be, but I'm using this as an illustration. Um, does anybody ever remember when they first fell in love? Normally, uh, uh, you know, when you, that, uh, and we talk about it as puppy love, or at that time when you're little, and you know, it, it's an immature love, I know, but, and you see that little girl, you see that little boy, whatever age you were, and you become infatuated. Has anyone ever been infatuated? I can hear some giggles. I remember when I, I'm not going to go into it in detail, don't feel led, but I remember when I, as a, a, as a young boy, when, I had my first love, and it was total infatuation. I mean, I was head over heels. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was just totally infatuated. Well, that analogy breaks down, but what God is saying is, you know, when you fall in love, the honeymoon period was over for the Ephesians. And that romance that excitement, that wanting to be with a particular person all the time, uh, wanting to be with him. Do you remember the, those of you that got married? Those, that you just want to be with him, you just want to be with her, you just want to spend time with them. You're excited because you haven't seen them for a while and you're going to meet them and, uh, and you just love them so much you want to get married to them. Well, this is the type of thing, although that's very natural, that Jesus is talking about. And sometimes we can remember that first time when you met the Lord. You know, what's wonderful is when people are radically saved. I mean, radically saved. Sometimes it takes some people a bit of time to get, to catch up. They've been saved, but they haven't realized. But some people get radically saved. And they are almost embarrassing to be with. They love the Lord so much. You hear what I'm saying? The passion, the love. And what can happen... It's the same in marriage. You know, you can have what they call a honeymoon period, but after the honeymoon period, you have to work on your marriage. You have to keep the passion alive. You have to keep the romance alive. You just can't sit back and do nothing. In the honeymoon period, it's just all there. And what happened with the Ephesians is that they had missed the honeymoon period. They'd moved on, and they'd forgotten that what the Lord wants more than even works is devotion and relationship. For him to speak such a powerful word to a church, because everything else was pretty good. I mean, they were doing all right. They were moving on strong. And it just said something about Jesus that he could be like, yeah, you're doing work. Yeah, you're faithful, you've persevered, you've even endured hardship, and you've got great discernment, but none of that really matters to me if you don't love me if you're not passionate for me, if these things are fueled out of love. And who is a married couple? Which wife would 
would ever sort of like say it would be enough if a husband just sort of like, you know, did things but didn't show any love behind it. You know, you never bring me flowers anymore. In two hours, there's flowers. No, 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 I asked you for flowers and you gave them to me. You need to give me flowers when I haven't asked them for you. I need to see that there's some passion or love behind that. You know what I'm talking about? And so the, it's, the, it's your first love. It's the passion for Christ that releases God's power in your life. This is why the bridegroom is coming back for the what? The bride. Jesus isn't coming back for a congregation. He's not coming back for, as team leader for his team. He's not coming back for his workers. He's coming back for his bride. And we need to really understand what that means. And when he comes back for his bride, what's he going to do? He's going to have a marriage supper. Okay? He's not coming back for his workers. He's not coming back for his army. He's not even coming back for his friends or his colleagues or his co-workers. He's coming back for his beautiful bride. And he wants his bride to be madly in love with him. And one of the major indications of an end-time church in preparation is its passion for Christ. And what can happen in our lives is that as we go through the motions of church and everything, we can end up being more involved in the work of Christ than the love of Christ. And the Holy Spirit wants to change that. And how you say, well, how do I do that? Well, how do you reawaken romance in your life with your wife or your husband? You spend time with them romancing. You don't just, you know, you go out, you go for a meal, you spend time. You speak to one another, you share with one another. And what the Ephesians needed to do was to go back to that personal devotion. You're only as good as your last personal devotion. But don't worry. If you say, oh, I'm nowhere in this situation, you can fix it today. You can fix it in a moment's time. None of this is hard if we respond to what God wants us to do. He who that has a hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. We know that, as I close, that, and then we'll move on to some of the other churches next week. We know that, and I'll be speaking tonight on love, the way to victory. Because we know that in the end, what really matters to God is love. That's what matters, love. The trouble is, we're not quite sure what love means. And tonight, I'm going to be speaking about how, how there are two types of love in the New Testament. Agape love, it's the God kind of love, and filio, which is a sort of human kind of love. And I think 99.9% .9 of us get the two mixed up. We give God filio love and want another filio love. But what God wants is agape love. That's why he can say to the Corinthians who have got all kinds of power gifts, he can say to them, do you know what? If you have all faith but no love, it doesn't matter. If you can move all mountains and don't have any love, not interested. Um, even if you give your life and are martyred but you don't have love, I'm not interested. Love is patient, love is kind. And so God, when he says you've forgotten your first love, this is a message to us all. We need to tap into what divine love is.
We have to stop relying on a love that is a human filial love, and we have to have a revelation and begin, and only God can do it, and relationship with God, to understand what real love is. And this is love, that God sent his son to die for us on the cross. One of the biggest restorations that needs to come to the church in Europe is a restoration of love. And when I say love, it is not what you think it is. It's not what I think it is. We need a total renewal in our mind of what love really is. Because here's Jesus, who is love, saying, you've lost your love. I want it back. And if you don't give it back, you're going to lose your lampstand. Is that very loving? <laughs> we've got to get the Jesus back. We've got to, if Jesus is love, which he is, we've got to... We've got to Say, well, this is a passionate Jesus. I mean, look, look, look how passionate he is for his church. Look how, in the right positive word, because there's a positive jealousy as well as a negative jealousy. There's a positive jealousy. You know, if, if your wife doesn't care that, that you go out with other women, then there's something wrong there, isn't there? There's a positive jealousy here. And what Jesus is saying, I'm so jealous for you that it's all or nothing. I want your love. I'm jealous for your love. That's what I want. I want your love. I want your passion. And if you're not going to give it to me, then I'm not going to hang around. If you don't love your wife, if you don't love the person that you're courting, ready for marriage, if you don't love, they're not going to hang around. You're going to lose a buddy. She's going to go. She'll find someone out, some other Christian man who will love her and love her properly. Isn't that right? And Jesus is basically saying, do you know what? Here I am. You're doing all these works but I want your love, I want your passion. And if you don't give it to me, I'm not hanging around. I'm off. I'm off with the lampstand. <laughs> I'm taking my light with me, and I'll go and find somewhere else, that's the sort of picture, that will give me that love and that passion. The jealousy of God is such a wonderful thing. He is so possessive of you. He loves you so much. And he's jealous. And, and, and if you run away, he will, he will pursue you. But at the same time, you know, he is God Almighty. And you can't just fob him off with a box of chocolates and flowers on February the 14th. Here, here are Jesus, here's some milk tray or black magic, whatever chocolates you want. And here's a rose. See you next year. Uh, you did that to any woman and you wouldn't see you next year. So here is a powerful message in the middle of Revelation. A message of Jesus saying, I want your passion I want your love. We can reflect in our own, own hearts what the Lord is saying to us about that, but also in our cell groups and our churches, we can say, God, what are you saying to us? What is there of Ephesus in us that you're speaking to? When we come back next week, we're going to go through some other, we're going to see Smyrna that was going through great tribulation and that God was going to bless them. And again, we're going to apply these to our lives because he is, these, these messages to the seven churches are about changing our lives and our churches to be ready for the soon coming King. God bless you.